The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. Good afternoon. It's uh, Monday, the 12th of December, 2022, and festive greetings to you all and compliments of the season. I wasn't in studio last week, Monday. I'm sure you would have heard that we played a repeat, and that's because I was at BankServe Africa and PwC's fraud conference. Fortunately for me, um, also at the conference were senior members of the Hawks. The provincial head of the Hawks, General Cadwell, was president, was president rather, the uh, head of the commercial component for the province, Brigadier Mushroom. Obama was president, and then the, the component heads for commercial crime, Johannesburg, Colonel Bikes, and Pretoria, Colonel Maseko, were present. And it was important for me to, to have them present because I was able to give them the nod. And what do you mean by giving them the nod? Well, too often we hold these conferences, we chat about people that are, you know, tasked with investigating crime in South Africa, and it's always negative, the connotation that one takes away from it. People tend to think that there isn't enough effort put into investigations, that perhaps members are corrupt, that perhaps they're just not interested, and that's not the case. I read some interesting statistics, and I'd like to just reflect on them for a couple of minutes before before we go live with our guest, Pira Mendes. And the statistics are as follows. The police budget is around 100 billion rand per annum. Yes, that's with a B, 100 billion rand per annum. Of that budget, 2 billion rand goes towards the Hawks, just 2 billion. That's 2% of the budget goes towards the premier crime-fighting unit in South Africa. And over 3 billion rand, that's over 3% of the budget, goes towards VIP protection. One has to ask ourselves, where is the priority? To make matters worse, Becky Chell has come out to say he's signing off on 300 retirements per month. That's per month, 300 retirements of seasoned investigators. General Labia has come out and said that the Hawks are only capacitated at 49%. And my question is, has there been a skills transfer? Today's show is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. We're going to be back with Pira Mendes straight after this message. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. Joining me today in studio is somebody I have been pleading to come on air with me for the last couple of years, and that's because of the the trauma we all experience with load shedding. I'm hoping to get some answers. Piro, a very warm welcome to you. Good afternoon, Chad and your listeners. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's great to be here finally. So, Piro, I started off today's conversation by mentioning the problems that are faced by South Africa's premier crime-fighting organization, the Hawks. And there's many factors that come into play when one talks about the Hawks. They don't have enough funding. They don't have enough staff. And what we've also seen is those with experience have been hollowed out of the system. And while they've been hollowed out of the system, they've been replaced with people who are malleable, people who are influenced, and people perhaps that have a nefarious agenda. It's almost as if I'm speaking about Eskom. No, it's very true. Look, skills is critical and experienced skills are even more critical. And the truth is we come into a situation very much like you've explained where there has been an exodus of the experienced skills. And then one has to ask oneself whether this is just 
as it had to happen or whether it was orchestrated. And if we look at the current situation within the power sector in South Africa, there's definitely a tendency in that direction. You're touching on something that's so very important now. And when one looks at our energy needs, we were very reliant on what was going to happen with Madupi and Kusile. What is happening with Madupi and Kusile? Because so much faith has been put into those, those, those potential projects, yet we're sitting over the weekend with stage five and stage six load shedding. No, that's a very good question, Chad. And I think Madupi and Kusile has been a center of attention for many months. And interestingly enough, these projects started off in a very, how do I say it, less than perfect storm which was initiated in the early 2000s. Eskom and government were aware that they needed additional capacity, but for various reasons, some of which were policy-related to the energy sector, uh, the building of these power stations was delayed dramatically. And in that time, the seasoned professionals from within Eskom who had the experience from an EPC perspective, as well as a build perspective in the actual local industry who would be executing the build portion as the onshore portion, these skills left. I mean, they didn't see anything on the horizon for them to be around for. So basically those skills up and left and went to areas or countries where there was opportunities for their skills. So during that time, at that time, we lost a, sufficient, a significant amount of capacity, and that capacity was critically important uh, to the timing of the Madupi and Kusile build. So in summary, the instruction to go ahead was an accelerated instruction from the powers that be, and uh, by the time the instruction was given, there was very limited time to be able to react, respond, and build those two stations. And I think we've seen the, the outcome of those accelerated plans today. What we saw with the, the advent of the new dispensation in ninety four ninety five was the rollout of a program to address the um, lack of resources in the township environment, in the rural environment, and there had to be some form of program to bring to people that had been neglected the basic services. So eventually the RDP program was rolled out, and we saw a massive amount of housing being built, clinics being built, schools being built, roads being built in different areas. We saw townships expand. We saw rural areas finally with roads and clinics and hospitals. But what we didn't see was the the need to also provide the support to these areas. We didn't see the new build of power stations or the new build of dams. And we had a Minister of Finance at that time that used to stand up very proudly in Parliament and talk about having a budget surplus. Do you think the powers that be were were too comfortable in the fact that they were inheriting a working system from Eskom and may have forgotten that with all this massive infrastructure development in terms of the RDP program, they forgot to spend capex on that which was needed the most, the electricity and the water? No, Chad, absolutely. You've touched on something that's very important. Often people feel that, you know, the provision of electricity just happens. It's a strategy that you just roll out. They forget to understand the economics behind it. And luckily, because of my past, I've had an... I've had access to the economic side as well as the technical side of power generation and transmission. And one has to be dealt with in conjunction with the other one. You have to be able to finance this infrastructure. And I think that's one of the biggest critical issues is financing areas that have previously not been supported with power is very complicated and it's very expensive. And if you don't have the necessary budget allocated to be able to build substations in those areas, it becomes very 
very difficult to justify these commercially, and eventually somebody has to pay for the build. So if you look at the power stations, they've all been built in traditional areas where the, where the requirement of coal is there. In other words, they built the stations mine mouth, on the, on the mouth of the mines from which they were going to extract the coal. So to actually create generation centers closer to those areas disadvantaged is very difficult. So basically, they have to make provision in the transmission and the distribution infrastructure to be able to supply power to these areas, and the business plan has to be there and supported. So like I heard in a conference, uh, one of the energy conferences overseas, either you have to budget for it or government has to promise for it, but the money's got to come from somewhere. It's almost a case of you know, putting off for tomorrow, 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 forgetting that time is catching up because everybody talks about the Eskimo of old, but the Eskimo of old didn't have to service the amount of households we now have in South Africa. No, look, that's a very good point, and it's something that's been brought up quite often on my group, the Coalface, as well. And realistically, the, the energy-intensive users are really industry. They're not the one-off individuals. So it's relatively simple from that perspective to supply the power. We had a, we had a, power, a power generation uh, surplus for a number of years. So that power generation surplus we had was more than sufficient to cater for most of the people in the country. The problem was getting the infrastructure built to be able to accommodate the evacuation of power from those power stations to the areas that need it. And unfortunately, again, the economics aspect comes to play because eventually somebody has to pay. So unless the government is promising to underwrite or to support by virtue of funding, subsidized funding, otherwise Eskom has to actually finance those transmission infrastructure costs off their balance sheet. Something doesn't make sense to me. You spoke about industry being the biggest consumer. We had massive industry. We had a huge mining um, community in South Africa, yet we're now faced with massive unemployment because industry manufacturing is at an all-time low. Do you think there's something that's not been told to us? Is it perhaps the fault of maintenance and the upkeep that's also resulting in this in this energy um, loss? No, absolutely. You've raised a very good question. If you look at the Integrated Resource Plan of 2019, there were these forced costs of how power generation consumption was going to increase over the next few years. And actually, those figures were never realized. There's actually been a contraction in the amount of power that we require by virtue of exactly what you've said. The amount of industry in the country is actually drastically reduced, which means there's absolutely no reason based on the amount of megawatts we have on paper to be able to generate for us to be in this situation. So essentially, a lot of the reason why we are here is simply down, down to energy policy. If the energy policy doesn't allow for Eskom to reinvest into refurbishment and maintenance of the existing stations, there's no way that those stations will be able to run long term and at rated output. They will just give up. And we're seeing that now. So basically, we've got to take into consideration not only the Eskom business, but what is the energy policy of this country and what is being focused on and prioritized by government. If government doesn't prioritize Eskom's baseload stabilization, then we are going to see worse of what we're seeing right now. We're having an absolutely fascinating conversation, an important conversation with Pira Mendes about the reality of what we faced with each and every day in South Africa, and that's load shedding. We'll be back straight after this. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. Is your shopping list longer and your time shorter? Well, Discam Delivered has you covered. From healthcare essentials to baby food beauties and toiletries, whatever you need, Discam Delivered has you covered. Download the easy-to-use Discam app and shop over 7,000 products at in-store prices that will be delivered to you within 60 minutes. Thank you, relax, while Discam delivers your essentials to you. It's that simple. Discam Delivered. 
from Diskem to you. Diskem Pharmacies, pharmacists who care. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. Today's conversation has impacted every single South African. Unless you're a very wealthy politician that has the state-of-the-art generator, I'm sure that politician, uh, I was going to say, gets stuck in robots, but then again, he has a blue light brigade. But the fact remains is load shedding has impacted every South African, and it's an important conversation we're having today with Piro Mendes. Piro, before we went to break, you mentioned earlier about the fact that The energy consumption isn't what was anticipated and that the majority of our power stations are built near the source of what they need to generate electricity, and that's coal. But we saw 20 days ago where we were told that there was no more money for diesel. Five days thereafter, they found money for diesel. And for 15 days, we had diesel and we didn't really have hectic load shedding. We're finding out that our power stations aren't running on coal. They're running on diesel, which is something that's unbudgeted for and costs an absolute fortune. What's going on? No, look, absolutely, Chad. Um, One of the problems that we have as human beings is we tend to adjust too easily and we tend to sort of make peace with our situation far too easily and quickly. And the diesel we're burning at the moment is actually meant for peaking power. So the plants that Eskom is using right now to burn diesel are actually only meant to be generating during times of peak use for very limited periods of time. But unfortunately, by virtue of the situation on our coal-fired power stations, um, Eskom has had to use these open cycle gas turbines almost as baseload to make up for the shortfall of the coal fleet. Now, all you're really doing there is applying a Band-Aid to a severed limb. You know, you have to address the severed limb, and then after that, things start coming right. But ultimately, for as long as we find Band-Aids to try and cover up the situation with our baseload coal, uh, we're never going to win the situation. What is the situation with our coal? We're exporting coal. We're exporting coal en masse at the moment to Europe because of the problems between um, Russia, Gazprom, and the European clients. And we're seeing a lot of European countries reverting back to coal because they don't have this gas anymore coming from, from Russia. How is it that we're able to export quality coal, but our power stations are running off diesel? Yeah, that's another very good question. Essentially, the coal that our power stations were designed to run on is basically on the site where the power stations are based. So basically, the coal-fired power stations were not meant to be burning high-quality coal, but they were meant to burn the quality of coal that they were built on, the mines that they were built on. So there was always an export of coal, but unfortunately now, because of the capacity of the exports that required by foreign markets that have pegged their generation on gas, it's now left us in a situation where those volumes have increased. And I can only imagine that because of that, what's happening at this point is that some of the coal that is required for the Eskom coal-fired power stations is now being substituted for even inf- more inferior-grade coal. And even the, co- the coal that we w- should be burning in our boilers is actually now being exported as well, which is leaving the mills and the boilers working with coal, which is a way substandard to what they should be. With Ukraine uh, being so so prevalent in everybody's uh, chats these days, especially with regards to the energy crisis that Europe is now facing, we've looked at other aspects of Ukraine. And, and one of the things that came out is, although it's a war zone, less people die in Ukraine per quarter during this war than die in South Africa because of murder. But then another statistic came out that Ukraine is having its power grid targeted by Russia, yet they still seem to have more power during a war where their infrastructure has been targeted by a foreign power in a militaristic way. They've got more power still than South Africa. How is this even possible? 
that's another part of the current situation that we're facing, which is related to strategy. If the energy strategy of the country has changed substantially and coal-fired power stations are no longer considered as the baseload of the economy for the mid to long term, then what happens is that funds and decisions related to CapEx investment in those plants then gets cut off. So essentially what you're doing is you're basically saying we're not going to be reinvesting into the coal fleet because our ideas or our integrated resource plan are reflecting the fact that we should be moving to renewable energy. Now the trouble is if you don't have a very clear transition and a very well orchestrated build program to replace that coal, you're going to end up in a situation where the policies don't turn out the way you expect them to and because the capex has been shut off to the power stations they can't have the major refurbishment executed that they need and then these stations start to fail another big part of that problem is that the people are making decisions with relate related to capex spend on the power stations don't really understand uh, the risks associated with running old plants and the people that are really familiar and very well seasoned with understanding the risks of running old plants are not making the capex decisions in terms of where to invest the money. So you've got that disconnect. And when you have a disconnect like that, people basically believe, well, uh, the generator's generating, so leave it as it is. The trouble is it gets into a situation where you have a failure, you don't get a warning. It becomes a catastrophic failure. Then it becomes a disaster. So the seasoned engineers that are giving the the so-called recommendations to do refurbishment of those stations are doing that based on symptoms that they are seeing in the operating of those plants. And if that information doesn't get to the people on a senior level who approve the, who approve the CAPEX, you sit in a situation where you have unplanned failure. So the situation is now we are sitting with a, a much higher unplanned uh, generating fleet downtime than we should have, probably about 10 or 15 times. And the reality is because the operations and the refurbishment are not being done as they should be, we're sitting in a baseload deficit. Whereas in Europe, for example, they've got a very um, responsible and they've got a very well-experienced team managing the servicing and the maintenance of these stations. And therefore, as can be seen in many countries of the world, old plant can be generating reliably. It's not about the age of the plant. It's about the operations and the maintenance of that plant, which determines whether that plant can be relied on or not. We see the situation with Badupi and Kusile, brand new power stations, not generating as reliably as the stations that were built in the 70s and 80s. Pira, help me. Going, I'm going back to, to diesel. I'm really harping on this because I, I fail to understand what's going on here. We're spending a fortune on diesel where we've got coal-fired power stations. Firstly, where's the money coming from for this diesel if it hasn't been budgeted for? And secondly, are we doing damage to our power stations by using so much diesel rather than using the coal? No, look, conventionally the use of diesel is an open-cycle gas turbines, and normally those plants are, are designed to run on, on gas, on diesel, sorry. Um, essentially the coal-fired stations don't, as a rule of thumb, burn diesel. They only burn coal. So the open cycle gas turbine plants, which are smaller, much, much smaller contributors to the Eskom power generation um, structure, are burning diesel. And they're running basically 24 hours a day now because of the fact that we have a deficit from the coal for a coal-fired power station side. So if the base load was generating as they should, you'd only see the use of open cycle gas turbines in the mornings or the evening peak times. So I think a lot of us were under the misconception that the diesel was being used in place of the coal. What we're now finding out from you is that there's actually two different sets of, of generation, and we're more reliant at the moment on the diesel than we are on the coal. Well, in terms of the, of the operating methodology for which the plant was built, yes. 
the coal-fired stations are still running as as um, to their basic output limits, but to supplement what they're not able to supp- supply, they're using the open cycle gas turbines to do the rest of their work. And that's where, why, why we are in the situation that we are. So to answer your first question, the budget for diesel was always there in order for the open cycle gas turbine plants to be able to generate during peak times. However, it was a much, much smaller budget than what is being required at the moment to try and run them on a a 24-hour-a-day basis. And that's not to mention the amount of degradation that those plants actually face because they were actually never built to run as baseload. They were built to run as open cycle gas turbine peaking plant, which means the maintenance cost associated with the OCGD plant also goes up exponentially as the use of diesel and the amount of hours you use them per day increases. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about two very important factors. Number one, sabotage. And number two, a total collapse of the grid. Absolutely. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. And to all of our advertisers and sponsors, a huge thank you. Yes, there was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek with that song, Come On Baby, Light My Fire. I think all of us going into the festive season are busy changing our plans. We don't know what stages we're going to be at on any of the days um, that are celebrated with friends and family. And a lot of us are going to be starting fires. Luckily, we're a bry nation. Joining me today, of course, is Piro Mendes. He is a energy consultant he's somebody who knows the ins and outs and he's given us so much clarity today as in the problem that we're facing with load shedding before we went to to break Pierre, i mentioned to you the aspects of sabotage and we've heard about sabotage is this sabotage from a political perspective is it terrorism or is it people that are just making looking to make a quick buck that's a very interesting question, and it's also got multifacets too, as you mentioned. Uh, there's straightforward sabotage where people are actually sabotaging the plant, and this normally, if I was going to say normally could take place, this would be during um, repairs, because essentially the repair work, a lot of the repair work is, bun- is done by contractors who, who then use labor hire companies to substitute their or to supplement the labor. Now, the trouble is when the economy is subdued, people need their jobs. And uh, when these outages are being executed, these people are, are very well aware of the fact that when it gets to the end of that outage, they are probably going to be sitting without work for a while. So it's not really in those, in those people's interests for the work to be executed on time or without any so-called casualties, if you want to call it that. And I say casualties in terms of damage to the plant. So unfortunately, you are going to get unscrupulous people that are uh, working on the plant that are going to take actions like this which are basically going to force us into a situation of baseload deficit just to keep themselves employed so there's those people that commit actual sabotage and then the other question you have to ask yourself is sabotage is subjective it it depends on what you're referring to now if you're not able to maintain your plant for whatever reason if you're not given the capex necessary to execute refurbishment this could also be considered a sabotage in the plant because ultimately there are guides and uh, engineering guidelines as to what needs to be executed on a plant based on its operating conditions and, uh, and various other operating parameters. And if you're not spending the money to refurbish those stations, ultimately you will be sabotaging those plants, whether you're doing it on purpose or not, because you're not executing the necessary maintenance to be able to ensure that those stations are running effectively and uh, reliably. It's unbelievable. During the wage negotiations of a, a few months ago, um, workers prevented trucks carrying coal 
um, from entering power stations. We hear about the sabotage taking place. And one has to ask oneself the question, these are national key points. Yeah. We're talking about our country dependent on energy to survive. Why aren't we seeing people charged with treason? And why aren't we seeing the military deployed? They were quick enough to deploy the military during COVID. Why aren't the military deployed to the power stations? That's a very good question. And that's another question that was raised on the coalface group earlier on as well. Um, people are caught red-handed. But then the justice system seems to fail or these people slip through the fingers of the justice system because uh, formality or, ticked, or boxes weren't ticked and the correct methodologies in arresting those people wasn't followed. And because of that, these people find their way back onto the street again. So it's a culmination of the fact that, you know, these people aren't prosecuted simply because the correct processes and procedures weren't followed when they were arrested. And uh, this doesn't help the economy at all because those are the people that need to be dealt with. And we need to be actually making examples of these people so that contractors or people that are thinking of doing this in the future are put off. Essentially, these, were na- these are and have always been national key points. And companies were very carefully screened and pre-qualified before they were allowed to work on this plant. And I think we need to revert back to basics, to understanding which contractors we're using on these plants, making sure that we've assessed them carefully to be sure that when they're working on those plants, they know what they're doing, first of all, and that they are the, the quality of contractor that you want working on national key points. It's unbelievable that we're allowing this to go unchecked and that we're not seeing more retaliation from the taxpayer base as well as from industry in respect to the fact that government doesn't seem to be serious enough in combating what I would call economic terrorism. If people are sabotaging our electric electric grid simply because they want to make more money, well, that is economic terrorism. What would you like to see the authorities do? No, absolutely. These people must be dealt with in the most severe ways possible with respect to what they've done. I mean, if we look at coal, for example, we've seen people that are offloading coal into yards and then loading up very low-quality coal and then taking this to power stations to put through their mills and boilers. And this creates one of the biggest problems on plants, boiler tube failures. And uh, nothing is done about these people. Uh, people know that there are areas where, this, uh, where the coal is being offloaded. Why aren't the, the army sent there? Why are the police not going out to these areas and managing them to make sure that these unscrupulous contractors aren't allowed or aren't afforded the opportunity to be doing such coal substitution. These are the things we need to ensure aren't happening. The primary fuel sources to our power stations must be controlled as they always used to be. Coal needs coal quality and specification needs to be maintained. Otherwise, we are sabotaging that plant every day that we operate it. We're talking to Pira Mendes about load shedding Eskimo. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about the dreaded term, total collapse. <laughs> Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. Before we went to break, I was chatting to Pierre Mendes about load shedding and sabotage, and now we're going to touch on something that, in the back of every single South Africa's mind, is a very, very scary possibility, and that is that the grid collapses is it a possibility? And if it does happen, Piro, what does it mean for us? Look, that's the, the most dreaded thought anybody could imagine. Anything like that is possible. I can tell you from experience though, that National Control, which is Eskom's command center, are very, very experienced in managing the grid. 
And it's for that reason that we are in a situation where we haven't had a blackout up until now. So they are very, very responsible and experienced and make sure that wherever possible, they institute load shedding to avoid a grid collapse. If a grid collapsed, it would be a disaster. It would take a few days for the grid to recover. Having said that, Eskom has already done some, um, how do I say, preparation, or they have already put plans in, in motion to make sure that their black start capability is available should it be required. So Eskom has done the experience thing, the responsible thing to make sure that they are making provision for the worst case. Whether I believe it will happen or not, I don't. I don't think we're going to get to that level. Um, I do believe that we have sufficient, um, how do I say it, um, capacity to be able to avoid it, but it is going to mean that we are going to be suffering with load shedding to avoid exactly that situation for a good few months to come. Are we, I hate puns, are we going to see light at the end of the tunnel? Is is something happening that that could give us a positive outlook? I'm glad you asked that question because I am positive. I have been a very firm Eskom supporter for over 25 years. Um, I've seen all the changes that have happened within Eskom. I've seen what's worked and what hasn't worked. And I'm a firm believer in going back to basics. And I believe that we are doing that. I'm seeing signs within Eskom that Eskom is starting to revert back to uh, policies and procedures that worked before. And on that basis, I am happy to say that I think that we can turn this around. There are a lot of very, very committed people, experienced engineers that are willing to support. We have a very strong private sector with lots of value-added capability that can also support Eskom. And I do believe it is possible. It is going to require a lot more integration or cooperation with the private sector to get it to where it should be. Not because we don't have experienced people on the stations. That's another misnomer. We have, sorry, not experienced, skilled. We have skilled people on the power stations. What we don't have, these people don't have sufficient experience. And that's where these, for want of a uh, different word, grey beards come into the equation. We have a lot of skill out there with a lot of experience. And it is possible for us to, to, re- to return the situation back to a situation where load shedding doesn't occur. But it's going to require a lot of things. It's going to require a strategy change from government. It's going to require Eskom being given the mandate to do what they, need, what they know they need to do. And it's going to require us considering our baseload as a primary source of power generation short to midterm and maybe even long term considering our economy. So if we can do these things, I do believe there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I have also seen signs from government that they are now more focused on stabilizing Eskom than diversifying the energy mix. And I think that's the key. If we can keep our eye on the ball and we understand that we need to stabilize the coal fleet before we take any further action, I think we're on the right track. And this has to then be filtered down to Eskom on an operational level so that they understand that they are able to plan maintenance they are able to plan midlife interventions and they are able to plan refurbishment and that they will get the support from the board in terms of the capex required to execute this much needed maintenance. When one talks about South Africa as a whole, if we take um, all these factors that have impacted on Eskom out the equation, we talk about South Africa's massive problem at the moment, it's unemployment. Mm. And for us to stop unemployment, we have to get our manufacturing and other industrial um, type operations back up and running, including mining. That's going to add a massive strain on the on the grid. Do you foresee that we'll be able to not just fix the current problems that we have, but potentially have added 
power to the grid, to the infrastructure that will be able to accommodate the growth that we need in both industry and mining? Mm, That's another very interesting question. Essentially, what what I see as the major problem at the moment is that industry is being, um, how do I say, supported in trying to self-generate. So now when you start getting industry self-generating, it does a number of things. First of all, it provides them with stable power, which is important for their operations. But what it does also do as a sting in the tail is reduce an amount of paying customers to Eskom. And this is a very, very big threat to Eskom stability. Eskom needs all the paying customers that they can get. And when we start encouraging the industrial sector to go self-generate, this is a risk for Eskom which we don't need. Because essentially, as you've rightly said, energy is the foundation of economic growth and industrial growth. And what we need more than anything right now is to grow our economy and bring skills back to South Africa. What we need to try to avoid is allowing for energy policies to be instituted which are focusing on importing foreign content. We need to be focusing on what energy mix we can support which is going to support the economic growth of our factories in this country and support the growth of our engineering and skills base in this country. Otherwise, we're going to end up in a situation where we're going to have a mass exodus. So I do think there is a balance that is possible to be able to do that, but it's going to require very clear integrated uh, discussions between the Department of Public Enterprises, the ESKIM, the Department of Trade and Industry. All of these have to be very clearly aligned in terms of developing economic and industrial policy and enabling an energy generation environment which supports that. Because essentially the the job-related energy that we're looking at at the moment is the coal. That's predominantly where all of our engineering skills are, in the mining sector and supporting the coal fleet. If we remove the coal fleet, all we're going to be doing is exacerbating an existing massive problem. We talk about the coal fleet and we're coming towards the end of the show, but it's a very important point that we need to talk about. And that's the fact that South Africa has just accepted a lot of money from foreign donors in respect of winding down on on certain energy type projects that pollute the atmosphere. Does this not mean that we're in a predicament now where we need coal, but we're making promises to the international community for money and we can't wind down on coal? Absolutely. I'm actually very glad you asked this question. If we look back to the energy policy and the energy strategy that we have at the moment, the most recent one that was announced by government is the Integrated Resource Plan of 2019. Now, essentially, that plan at that time was already not uh, very... Uh, how do I say it, focused and accurate in terms of our existing situation, never mind the expansion. Now, the problem we're seeing at the moment is we're going out to the rest of the world and asking for funding. And this is where it becomes very interesting because a number of these projects were originally marketed as funded when in fact they're not funded, they're financed. And this comes out later in the wash after the government has accepted additional debt. And if you look at the debt situation in this country, we're sitting at about 75% um, Our debt value is 75% of our GDP per annum. This is already a very, very unhealthy mix, and we should be trying to reduce our debt as opposed to taking on more debt. So if we consider the the contribution that these small so-called funded projects are making to the generation baseload, that money could be much better spent supporting an an energy generation source, which is creating local jobs. If you look at Komati, for example, we're talking about 250 or 300 megawatts. Now, Komati used to generate about 1,000 megawatts of power. That station was shut down, first of all, because they say it was too old to, to keep running, but second of all, because they needed to start to implement this renewable energy 
conversion or transformation. Now, what we're going to replace Komati with is probably 20% of 300, 250 megawatts, because if you look at the sustainable generation that comes from renewable energy, it's never 100%. It's always closer to 20%. So what have we done? We've sacrificed 1,000 megawatts for 50 megawatts. And in my mind, that doesn't make any kind of commercial sense for the amount of money that we're borrowing. And a lot of this money is borrowed. If you look at the donor portion of it, if you actually break it down, the donor portion is a very, very small and almost insignificant amount. And what we need to do as a country is be very careful of countries that want to give us some money to start us on an energy strategy, only for us to have to finance that at very expensive uh, borrowing rates for the remaining 80%. So we need to really look at it from a strategic point of view and say, are we spending this money well? could be spending this money in a different way, which is more conducive to our country, our economy, and generating local jobs. It's ironic to see so much of the world going back to coal, especially in the wake of Russia literally turning off the gas taps. In South Africa, we know that uh, we're going to be brying for Hanukkah, brying for Christmas Day, brying for Boxing Day, brying for New Year's Day. How much longer do you think we're going to be brying for before we see a turnaround? My honest opinion is at least two years. If you look at the, the, the gas strategy, it's going to take about two to three years for that to start showing fruits. The renewable energy, in terms of round five, we're looking at two to three years. The quickest way to bring generation to the grid is to, do, is to do the operations and maintenance of the existing coal. That is almost an immediate change that you're going to see. So if we're really looking at trying to change the or reduce the load shedding in this country, we need to refocus our attention on the coal fleet and focus to a much lesser extent on diversification of our energy mix. If you want to find out more about what's going on behind the scenes, I suggest you visit the social media page on Facebook called The Coalface. It brings in experts who give their opinion on the latest news about what's happening at Eskom, what's happening with regards to load shedding, and what's happening on our electrical grid. Piro Mendes, thank you so much for joining us today. Not at all. Thank you to you for the invitation and to Chai FM. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was an absolute pleasure chatting to somebody who understands and who was able to answer some of the really, really difficult questions. If you enjoyed today's show, there will be a podcast that will be uploaded within the next couple of hours to highfm.com. We'll also be uploading it to our social media page, which is the Confidential Brief radio show, as well as to the coalface. Confidential Brief was proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. If you're tired of getting contractors in to fix your leaky roof only to find out that your roof still leaks, it's time to sort that leak out for good. And looking at the weather, I think you'll know if you've got a leaky roof. Rubber Roofs manufacture and apply the rubber paint to your roof. Your roof will look great and won't leak anymore. Rubber Roofs offer a 10-year warranty. Rubber Roof is the trusted name in roof waterproofing. You can find out more at www.rubberroofs.co.za. I'm back this afternoon at four to, from 4 to 6. I'll be standing in for the afternoon um, host who unfortunately has taken a bit of a bug. But uh, other than that, for our loyal listeners, I'm back next week, Monday from 12 to 1, bringing you the Confidential Brief.